Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five of the Articulating Insight podcast, the podcast where I talk to interesting and creative people from around the internet about the foundational principles of art, using mainly film and music as our reference points. Although in this episode, we got so, some other mediums as well, so we're really uh, we're really branching out here. Uh, so on this episode, I have William Durier on the podcast who is the creator of the website Misery Tourism, which publishes various forms of writing and other multimedia art, including independent tabletop games, which is Durier's own background, which we talk about a bit this episode. And I highly, highly recommend you check out Misery Tourism. There are so many cool artists being represented on there. They have, um, every Friday, they have a little live stream called Misery Loves Company, where they have some of their creators that they kind of showcase come on and read their own work, and it's a really great way to connect with these artists in a more immediate way, and um, it's really just a great experience. So I highly recommend you check out the website and um, and all their social medias to keep up to date with all the crazy shit they do, because they, they do crazy stuff all the time. Um, but yeah, specifically in this episode, me and Derrier, we talk about um, the consideration of video games and other interactive mediums as an art form. Um, we discuss about how comedy and sexuality are some of the most primal human responses when engaging with a work of art and how those can be utilized both positively and negatively and how cultural reactions to that can reflect on how a culture is directing its media. We also discuss about getting started as a more outsider artist and how to stay motivated against both personal and external restrictions and how those can actually help manifest creativity. We also get from Durier a beautiful goddamn defense of abstract impressionist art that is amazing like i almost undersell it in my response but this was i like when i was editing i was just like this guy is so on it like he he just has an amazing justification for what abstract impressionist art and really like any sort of like minimalist kind of creations can achieve and why it's so valuable that these the artists working in these registers are being represented and finally, uh, we also talk about why the internet age and the, the kind of rise of this interconnected global community is really important for the rise of outsider voices and for intellectual or creative types um, everywhere. So yeah, overall, I think this is a really exceptional episode. Durye is an amazing guest. We have some great conversations about so many different topics. We have so many different places, and he's always has such an impassioned and enlightened perspective, and he's so goddamn articulate. My God. And I feel bad, because I I can tell, like, just re-listening the footage, I'm a little off my groove this episode. I won't lie. I'm not being near as cogent as I would like to be, and I, I just, I just kind of whacked out. And that's not helped by the fact that I had my mic set up in a really stupid way, and it was so dumb, because looking back, I was trying to set up my mic so it would minimize any sort of noise, because I noticed a few clicks in the past, and instead I just made it a hundred times worse, so I'm so sorry, I really tried to fix it as best as I can, but I'm not an audio wizard at all, so yeah, I'm sure a lot of it comes through, I'm so sorry if you hear bumps or mic like little scratches and stuff that that's totally my fault i apologize but the episode's still listenable you can still hear durier just go the fuck off on so many great topics so i highly recommend sticking it out even though audio quality is not the best and that's totally my fault and i have taken steps to prevent this happening again in any future recordings so you know starting out a podcast we're learning we're learning together here but yeah i mean i don't know I, i feel like i've already said too much about this episode because i mean just Go along for the ride, and um, I uh, really hope you guys enjoy my conversation with 
William Durier. Misery Tourism, which is the the website that I'm the editor in chief mm -hmm. yeah, of, yeah. started out as a um, indie kind of tabletop tabletop excuse me RPG site. My friend Rudy and I, who Rudy being the other co-founder of Misery Tourism, mm -hmm. we got really deep into the like narrative indie RPG community. And we quickly discovered that, this was back in 2011, 2012, we quickly discovered that, like, if you're making homebrew, homebrew RPGs, they're like two distinct groups, right? Mm. They're like two factions. And one of those factions is, like, hyper-traditional. Like, they're not just making, like, they're not just trying to make a more technically complex version of Dungeons & Dragons, but they're trying to make a more technically um, complex version of like second edition advanced Dungeons and Dragons, right? <laughs> yeah. Like they're deep, like if you're talking about um, internet subcultures or social media subcultures, they'd be like the trads. Yeah. Which is to say that they're like so deeply ingrained in this like particular, like highly puritanical, very crunchy mechanical perspective on how RPGs should be and they just want to make really obnoxious like <laughs> strategy games basically yeah. with with the same kind of like high fantasy settings that you'd find in Dungeons and Dragons or most RPGs mm -hmm. and obviously like Rudy and I just did not we can't like we were playing making games with like musical chairs mechanics and other like crazy shit like that like i think rudy had one at the time where like the mechanic was basically pictionary and these guys were like well that's not an rpg you know <laughs> that like you guys are way too fucking out there this is just silly shit this isn't real rpg shit and then um the other faction if we're going by like social media like uh, you know, clicks of today would have been like the woke faction, mm. and these guys—these were the story games guys—and they were very, they were totally one hundred percent down with doing weird mechanical shit, having hyper minimalistic mechanics, or having mechanics that are stolen from other games, or having mechanics that are weird and subversive or whatever. But what they were not at all down with was the content of our games. <laughs> they were not at all down with. Um, games that set out to like like transgressive games though like, yeah you... they were not at all yeah that's the perfect way to put it they were not at all down with transgressive games and mm. a lot of the games that rudy and i made were not like strictly like quote unquote like edgelord games but they were games that would take like serious and sometimes disturbing like sociological shit right mm. like I, I made a game that was like a deconstruction of like the lynch mob Jim Crow kind of mentality and things mm. like that. And these were games that were that tried to grapple with these issues in a way that I think in some time the idea often was to have the player not leave the game feeling clean and innocent. Like I, I think a lot of times there's this perspective where, well, if you're going to design a game and it's going to grapple with like serious sociological subject matter mm -hmm. well then the game better be very clear about the moral stance it's taking better be unequivocal uh in terms of like 
from like a quote-unquote safety perspective, unequivocal about making sure that the players have exactly the experience they're supposed to have mm-hmm. and being unequivocal about like debriefing the players, like letting the players know that that obvious shit like racism is bad it's like well okay no <laughs> like, like a, a very like heavy-handed didactic stuff that's mm-hmm. supposed to keep players feeling safe throughout the course of the game and supposed to fe- leave them feeling unequivocal and unambiguous about what the message of the game was whereas with rudy what rudy and i were doing it was more like we want players to be forced to occupy the psychology of like people who, who of of people who were like either troubled or, or fucking or fucking evil, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We want you to occupy the like. What is it like? Would it? What was the psychology of like a southern racist who would participate in a lynch mob? Because it's easy. Like, there's a kind of cultural consensus. It's very easy to look at that and say it's bad. Yeah. It's harder to look at that and try to get in deep and understand, like, what's the psychology that underlies moral panic? Mm-hmm. And is that, like, is there actually some of that, like, operating that that you, like, the player, who wants his preserve a kind of safe distance between yourself and this phenomenon that you actually carry around with you from day to day. Could you just as easily slip into this kind of like moral panic lynch mob mentality about something else? Yeah. Uh, And so it was very much about trying to get the players to occupy that uncomfortable base and to leave it feeling like not good about themselves and not good about like, the unequivocal like moral simplicity of the universe but like deeply disturbed by the moral ambiguity of the universe yeah and deeply disturbed by maybe their own capacity for evil if you want to call it that or their own ca- capacity for depravity or whatever and there just was no base in either of those communities for that kind of work and yeah. so we, we created misery tourism as a way to share that kind of work and have a space for work that was willing to transgress like not only like moral and ethical perceptions of what gaming can and should be but also technical ones you know mm-hmm. mechanical ones yeah and i'm sorry i feel like i sorry i kind of i've kind of been droning on about no this, no that's that's of, awesome yeah. no that's so good i, I have two like points I yeah. really really want to make and they both relate to that so the first part was that you talking about like the two factions of people I like I literally experienced that exact same thing in um, anime music videos which was a scene I was obsessed with and like deeply entrenched in from 2018 probably until about this year um, where I made these like really esoteric like videos with using like um, trying to explore, like, the pedophilic notions of, like, otaku subculture, the inherent kind of loneliness and um, weird, uh, like, ties to how religious iconography has almost been superseded by, like, waifus and stuff like that and how the oh, same wow. way people wanted to, like... Um, it, it's, it's like an icon that gives you purpose and identification and it's a, it's weird how it's shifted now into this kind of hypersexualized form of that or anything so i was trying to use the medium to explore those things and so of course there's the two camps of um like people who just want anime music videos that are fun flashy mm-hmm. silly and like you know like appeal to their preconceptions of what both 
the anime they're dealing with is, what the culture they're ex existing in, like you know, all the stuff you said about like the the trads, you know, like the, they they like the medium for escapism, and they'll work heavily within those machinations, like you said, like with the highly technical Dungeons and Dragons, like basically clones at that point, and like you know the. AMVs that win the top awards at like the big anime music video contests, they're all just more technically advanced um, versions on like the classic cloud pleasing animes and um, anime music video styles. And then there's a very small sect, like, like I could probably count the number of people who exist in this on like, like two hands, um, of people who are interested in the medium for Stranger Things, for <laughs> Not the show Stranger Things, but for Stranger Concepts, yeah, sure. like, you know, actual modes of articulation. And um, I think the, like, the parallels we see in both of those, in both, you know, tabletop games and anime music videos, both happen because they're mediums that have been kind of sidelined by both art scenes and mainstream cultures in a weird way, so they exist in this weird niche, so they haven't had the chance to develop into like, you know, like film or painting or whatever, like these sure. big mediums have had a chance because the conscious people, less of them are drawn there just because the niche is smaller. Maybe, I don't know. That's, that's, yeah, that no, might I be think more. that's absolutely the case, and I think in both cases you're also looking at relatively new art forms, right? Yeah. And you're looking at like relatively i mean i guess in some ways rpgs are actually um older than um than video games mm -hmm. but there's been a lot less money yeah um put into that zone right and there's a lot less it's a it's a much as you said like nicher smaller crowd that you're dealing with but i think in both of those cases you're talking about like nascent art forms yeah and i think unfortunately because you're dealing with nascent art farms uh, that have come about, that have really started to come in their own in the internet era, their kind of, their de development has been like subject to the like quirks and manias of the internet area, mm -hmm. era, yeah. the, of the social media era. Um, like if film was like just created in, in like in the 1980s or 90s, right? Mm -hmm. And only became a thing that we began to be shared through the internet. And there was only really a, 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 you know, an artistic community around film only started to develop in tandem, tandem excuse me, with the development of social media. Mm -hmm. I think, I don't think you'd see like, you know, new wave films or the the auteur films of the 70s in the u.s i i don't think you'd think you would see scorsese yeah and i don't think you would see francis ford coppola and i don't think you would see like um bergman or any of the the figure the like because i think those things are in some ways subject to the time that they developed in, to the communities that they developed in, to the resources that were available, and most importantly, like to the social pressures of the yeah. time. And I think right now, unfortunately, like the larger prevailing like cultural pressures and social pressures are dragging people towards a kind of a kind of polarization, a kind of polarization yeah. polarization that goes beyond simply being political to being like cultural and intellectual. And I don't think there are many bases right now, unfortunately, for work that wants to be kind of, as I said before, transgressive in both 
content and tone or in terms of both content and technique Mm -hmm. like to really blossom and to really find an audience and i think that's really unfortunate because i think those alternative modes like the the approaches that are in vogue right now to fit for film criticism for criticism of like any variety mm-hmm. are really stilted really limited and mostly lead people towards um in a, pro- a joyless approach to like looking at art you know yeah uh yeah sorry. Like... but you had another thing that, that you wanted to talk yeah, that's, I just I I think what you said was so great there. Um, but I also think I think in addition to that, um, you're talking about like more um great works have the opportunity to be created, um, because of like the wider cultural acceptance and like the the greater time to develop for those mediums. And I think also I think a big part is just the recognition of a cultural canon and like a like a wider recognition of works in those mediums. Because I've seen anime music videos that like could be like a like a the equivalent of a Scorsese or a uh, like a France for Coppola or something if the medium was taken seriously but it, but it's like it's not so like it's not that those works aren't being necessarily created it's that those works aren't being recognized and championed and thus those people don't like don't have the opportunity or the resources to make more and so i think it's it's a it's like a tandem thing there um that that is i 100% agree with you there and i think that's to kind of bring it back to what I was saying about misery tourism, mm-hmm. that's a lot of what like we are trying to do. Uh, a couple of years ago, we really expanded our um, sphere of like of content beyond games to include, you know, art and music and literature and especially lit- literature. I think for whatever reason, literature has increasingly become a focus in terms of the content that. Uh, both the content that's submitted to us and the content we ultimately end up publishing. And, um, but yeah, I agree with you. It's, there is absolutely no shortage in games, in music, in film, mm-hmm. in any of these genres, in any of these mediums, in terms of content, in terms of art that is legitimately you know, kind of trying to accomplish the goals that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The problem is, as you said, it's 100% resources. It's 100%. What's the larger cultural narrative about? About where's the money at? Yeah. Where does the advertising revenue go? You know, all of these things. And, mm-hmm. and what do the institutions? You know, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, the big five publishing companies and literature, whether we're talking about the few remaining major you know film conglomerates if you're talking about movies at the major record labels so on and so forth like where are they putting their resources where are they putting their attention in all these cases it's very clearly uh like either in mass media marvel-esque popcorn shit or it's in you know playing one side or the other the culture war in order to get engagement through resentment. And I think in both cases, like work that wants to be artistically challenging is kind of SOL, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And I think specifically, like what I wanted to mention about games earlier is I think games are like a real double-edged sword, which is why I think even like, I don't know, in this say, um, I'll speak specifically to video games, that's something I'm more familiar with, but you can absolutely talk about tabletop games too, and I have a feeling there's a lot of overlap um, in the sense that um, these things are, like, on a large scale, 
require a lot of resources. Like games, I would think the effort yeah. to make a, a truly like AAA game is much more than um, a, a, a film or whatever. Like a film, because I mean, I know like, you know, the Avengers budgets, they're so inflated and stuff and it's not necessary, but you can make a film that looks like the Avengers on a much smaller budget than like the base level of to make a game, I would think. Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and but then I, I think what I wanted to mention about the medium earlier is I think interactivity poses a lot of um, contradictions to how we view art. Like, yeah. I mean, the name of the podcast is Articulating Insight because that's w what I want to try to establish a definition for art is, in, like, in, as kind of counterproductive as that may be, um, is that film is the preservation of personal insights you gain throughout your life that other people can draw on and like those can manifest in like an infinity of ways but it's still you're pres preserving a singular or in some ways collaborative but still like a perspective and with games you now have to account for everyone else's perspective as well in the preservation of your perspective so in that way it almost becomes a medium of like curation or something rather than um a direct like what we would consider an art form up to this point. So um, I was thinking what you were saying earlier about putting yourself in the head of the mom mentality to gain an understanding of that. I was thinking a game that I thought did that effectively was like one of the biggest things that stopped me from thinking that games weren't art under this new definition was something like um, Papers, Please. I don't know if you ever played that that indie game. Yeah, I have. Yeah, and I thought like, I mean, it's, it's not the most ambitious game. It just wants to do one thing, which is to put you in the head of someone who has to make these bureaucratic decisions on the day-to-day, -day, on the individual level, and, you know, justify um, feeding your family with this in-game currency versus helping people who are in need, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I so I played the first couple of hours of Vapors, Please, and I understand, like... That it kind of, after that it kind of evolves into something a little different, mm -hmm. but I was actually really impressed with the degree to which the first few hours, anyway, were really entrenched in like the bureaucratic mundanity, uh, you know, mm -hmm. of the of this life and the idea of making small, shitty decisions that potentially have like profound consequences, yeah. right? And I think I agree with you, like what. What you just articulated was kind of Roger Ebert's argument mm -hmm. yeah. for why games weren't art, right? The idea that art exists as a means to share a very particular, carefully curated, carefully assembled perspective, mm -hmm. and that interactivity drips something away from there, right? Mm -hmm. That interactivity, the, the ability of the player to mold the game experience to their own whims and in their own image um, somehow detracts from the artistry there. Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of get what Ebert was getting at. And um, and I think I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of ambivalent about Ebert's position because on the one hand, uh, frankly, I don't, I don't agree with like his conclusion that games can't be art for the same reasons that you said. I actually think that the interactivity inherent in the medium is something that gives it a u unique kind of artistic potential, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a unique option for artistic engagement and places the, the, the player or the audience in a totally unique position that can be exploited artistically. But where I am kind of sympathetic to his argument is that a lot of the games that I see 
presented most often in arguments for like games can be art too or actually really shitty movies <laughs> yes yes absolutely you know, like it's like here's a stylist a stylist 2d platformer with very simple mechanics and we've shoehorned on this really maudlin like young adult fiction quality story about like war or something mm -hmm. onto it yeah with a lot we're actually like the story beats in these instances are often prescripted or mm -hmm. and the moral choices presented are often like uh navigating a flow chart right they're <laughs> yeah. not in the context so navigating a flow chart it's like do i want this guy to live or do i want him to die mm -hmm. and some games like i was playing the witcher 3 not that long ago and i, I got pretty frustrated with the way it presented moral choice mm -hmm. honestly because it really was just like okay you can make two choices both of them are going to potentially have negative um moral consequences like you're going to have to bear the weight of the decision you made either way and i'm fine with that i don't think it should be a clear-cut like good versus evil choice because in life often like you're choosing in a state of like moral blindness yeah but it was so clearly like make this decision and there might be unintended consequences but it was very the game was very much like wagging its finger it'd like be like okay you're about to make an important moral choice <laughs> this next thing you do is gonna be significant so choose the right dialogue option mm -hmm. and um I, I i don't know I, I found it really kind of facile and superficial yeah. and silly compared to what what movies what you know what films from even like the early age of film like films made within the first couple of decades of film as a medium were doing. Yeah. And and often, like, the sad thing is that The Witcher is actually one of the better examples. That often, mm -hmm. in fact, there's no choice at all that it's actually, like, true young adult kind of bullshit where it's like, okay, your character's about to undergo some trauma. You don't have any choice about it. Yep. And don't worry, at the end, we're going to, like provide you with ration, rationale and an explanation for this trauma but prep yourself for you know and it's very these things are very in my mind like their attempts to weakly imitate what other art forms are doing and what mm -hmm. other art forms have done better and i think actually you can get more robust like moral and emotional experiences from games when you force the like scripted section of it into the background and foreground player choice which is something like a, a game like papers please does that mm -hmm. or another game that i played years and years ago i think it's called passing and the oh passage the, you mean i think maybe it's passage. is it by yeah, J jason jason roer or whatever his name was or? yes it's just funny because I, I was just about to bring that up and that's such a weird game it's so funny where the game is essentially you move from the the left side of the screen and the aesthetic of a like old school arcade game um and over the course of the game you can kind of like encounter a spouse and get married and your score like moves up and there's a sense of like progression here but none of it is like but it's contextualized very different mm -hmm. differently and it actually like instead of trying to use games as a um 
as a means to like imitate what film might be doing. It's a very, I think, pure way of contextualizing life through the lens of a game. Yeah. And I think by doing that, it even in its simplicity, like it's way more like effective than something that would be like, okay, we're gonna shove a lot of ham fisted like dramatic dialogue down your throat that by the way is often I don't I don't understand why this is the case mm. but video games are universally terribly written <laughs> yeah I don't know how this is because I it like my day-to-day -day life every day we get multiple submissions at misery tourism from incredibly skilled writers writers whose technical skill is above and beyond anything I I see in the in video games and we're not a paying market right yeah, yeah. I, I don't understand why it's always the same like kind of slock you know yeah <laughs> that you end up with video in video game writing but sorry i feel like i derailed you though i feel like you were about to say something. no no that was exactly what i was talking about no that, that, that that's fantastic um I, it's so funny you bring up past because i was literally just about to bring the developer that i i don't know how to pronounce his name i think it's J jason rower jason rower i don't know um, he, he has done a lot of fantastic work. Um, have you ever heard of the game of Sleep is Death? No, I haven't actually. It, it's this game where, um, you, it's, it's a two-player game, and one person creates, oh, like a world, like, they have, uh, preset assets, or you can make pixel art things, and then one person plays a character, and then you take turns and you make a story together. And I just, I just had some of the most, like, valuable experience in my life with my friends, although, Again, that feels like a weird example of a game as art because that's more like just a software or something where you make, like, you're, you're creating things just in this kind of curated environment. Yeah, I mean, I guess it does. It is a little bit uh, closer to, like, an RPG system, right, mm -hmm. in that sense. But, I mean, it's also not that distinct from, like, interactive install art installations yeah. that you might encounter at a museum or something, you know, uh, performance art, mm -hmm. right? And I, I think that when games enter that space of performance art, it's actually pretty valuable because, and RPGs do this too, because that's actually an, a, a, an experience that's walled off to a lot of people. Like, I grew up in rural America. I've spent most of my life living in rural areas, you mm. know. And so I haven't had many opportunities to, like, go to art museums. Like, yeah. I remember the first time I set foot in the Hirschhorn Museum in D.C. I was probably, like, 20 or something, mm -hmm. and it blew my fucking mind. I had no <laughs> perception that this is, like... I had no way of anticipating what that space would be like. Like, I knew what kind of art I might encounter. I'd seen, like, abstract expressionist art before, and I'd seen... I'd seen all of this shit, but I had never been in that kind of space before. Yeah. And there's something really unique about that. And I think game, if games can provide people with that kind of experience remotely, if you can create a game like that, that's a sort of like collaborative performance art piece where the artist may just create a framework that the players can work inside, just, just like... You know, if somebody duct tapes themselves to a wall in an art museum and lets people come up and, like, tape signs to them or throw shit at them or whatever, <laughs> it's a similar kind of experience, right? Yeah. The artist 
has created this thing and then surrendered this this thing to the audience. And I think that's still art. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, that gaming actually presents the opportunity, uh, and I know I just said that, to make these kinds of experiences more broadly and widely available. And yeah. I think that's fantastic, you know? Well, and, and like, bro- both broadly av- um, like available and also done on a scale that can be more fully fledged than something like a physical art installation, like in the way that, you know, something like Sleep is Death, you can create a whole universe in this thing that is, like, it could be a really unique expression compared to, like, you know, the limitations where, when you're in a physical space and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a right. great point. There are some games I wanted to bring up um, in response to, uh, to, to, like, your specific critique of, like, modern games. I think, in a weird way, The Last of Us, <laughs> that game, acts as a weird deconstruction of itself in its final moments. The first game, that is, where um, throughout the whole game, you're, you're acting like this hero character who's doing the unambiguously morally right thing, finds some kind of escapism in acting out through this this character. And then at the end, you discover that... Um, or spoilers for The Last of Us, if anyone gives a shit. Um, <laughs> the, the, that to, you have to sacrifice the one girl you've exporting, ex- escorting the whole game in order to get this cure that will save humanity. And the main character says, fuck it, I'm going to kill all the scientists and not get this cure. And you have no choice. You just do it. And so now you are now broken from this escapism into this flawed, morally bankrupt choice because of this this character motivation now and it's a deconstruction of because the whole game plays like a movie game like there's these very like scripted cinematic sequences which i always thought was interesting but only to the extent where it talks about how its own approach doesn't work and then i'm pretty sure i've heard it it does interesting things in the sequel which i haven't played with regards to perspective and switching to the villain and stuff but i still think that was a strong statement in that way yeah, I think that's interesting. I've never played The Last of Us. Um, see, in my outside perspective on both of the games has mostly been framed by, like, the controversy around them, which <laughs> yeah. I think was kind of pretty silly on, oh, yeah. on both sides. And my broad perception of, like, what I, what the game seemed to be about. And I guess I think I kind of wrote it off because I got the impression that is like, oh, this is going to be like The Walking Dead or something, mm-hmm. which I think... Uh, which didn't really like I thought it was going to be that kind of like facile approach to like moral choice where yeah. it's like simply it's nihilistic in the wrong way I it, like coming where I'm from where I'm coming from I like if any of the people who read uh, misery tourism end up listening to listening to this they're going to find it very strange that I would use like nihilistic as a pejorative mm-hmm. but I do think like, in The Walking Dead, it's this kind of grim, like, march through bad moral choices with very little, like, either, like, serious reflection on what any of it means yeah, or serious reflection on how any of this stuff would play out if these characters weren't simply walking plot devices, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I and... T- yeah. Oh, sorry. If you want to, if you you got something else you going on there. No, no, no. Okay. Uh, that was it's actually so great that you kind of segue into that because that was that was something I wanted to bring up. Where um, I think even in that the one podcast I've heard you in, you 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 discuss what you think misery tourism means and how you think it's kind of a ridiculous critic critique of something. Where um, I oh no, there was in one of your write ups where you talk about 
that like if you either say that it's it's glorifying um, kind of uh, sadness or poverty or something like that, um, which many of these works are not, or it's um, I, for, I forget the, the the other way you deconstruct it, but you basically say that there's no real critique directly on the work, and I totally agree. Um, but I, I can see a type of misery tourism showing up in the way people engage with things like The Walking Dead or a film I've brought up every single podcast episode somehow, um, Hereditary. The, I think those are all, those are works that are really just roller coasters under the yeah. guise of something greater because of these pessimistic perspectives and its delusions of like greater moral complexity when in reality it's just blind pessimism as opposed to blind optimism, which I, I think are equally as uninteresting. I absolutely agree with you. And I think when Rudy and I are going through submissions, right, or when we're working on our own work for Misery Tourism, mm -hmm. one thing I do not want to see is a kind of like surface level, just like skimming across the surface of depravity, right? Yeah. Every once in a while, and I don't want to be like hard on anyone, but every once in a while we'll get a submission that kind of reads like fucking Dexter or something, right? Where it's <laughs> like, uh, like this kind of like very superficial, like portrait of like a serial killer and like all the vicious, terrible things they're doing or something like that. Or it's just like, I just like complete submerging in like, as much banal nastiness as possible. Yeah. And, and almost without fail, we don't end up accepting those pieces. The pieces that we do end up accepting have, I think, one or both of two things. Either they make a very real attempt to dig below that superficial surface and understand the psychology of human misery, whether that's the psychology of suffering or whether it's the psychology of sadism or masochism or the psychology of perversity or there's a real attempt to grapple with the question of why people persistently behave in fucked up way mm -hmm. right or there's humor like there's a real they're satirical pieces right yeah. and i think if that one or both of those things, either the insight or the humor, have to be present to make transgressive works really, really sing, really effective. Mm -hmm. I mean, personally, I mean, I think that kind of metric can almost apply to anything. You'll either be, oh, yeah. if it's intelligent yeah. or entertaining. I mean, like, like that's it. Right. But I, I think, especially though, with 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 works with more negative perspectives or transgressive subject matter. Because that material will amp up any sort of response to it, it becomes much easier to exploit that stuff just for, for a simple thrill. Um, and so I think rising above those base responses to that subject matter will result in something uh, much more meaningful. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I was even thinking with regards to humor, because that's something I wanted to bring up when you were making your first point, was that if you think of a work like uh, American Psycho or, or even like Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, those works... I guess they do have something to say on some level, but I don't think they'd be as effective as they are without the elements of black comedy they use. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They, because what the humor does, and I think those cases, is it reveals the superficiality of the psychopathic character, yeah. right? 
And I think that's, that's fundamental because, first of all, that's, like, as far as, like, abnormal psychology is concerned, that seems to be the case. It's not that the that individuals who are, like, who suffer from, like, full-fledged antisocial personality disorder are so deep and dark and troubled and have so much going on that they have to act out in violence. What's actually the case is there's so little there. Yeah. There's so little happening under the surface that there's nothing to stop them from behaving that crassly, right? And mm. I think that a lot of... Um, that it's smart to engage with that kind of subject matter in that way and that when film and once again let's go like i think i i was going to go back to dexter and i was going to hate on dexter <laughs> but give dexter just a little bit of credit mm -hmm. like in its early seasons i think it did actually try to grapple with that sense of like this guy is paper thin and he's making this kind of uh weak attempt to like grapple with the fact that he's just like he doesn't have these capacities that other people have but I, I think as like it went on and in order to like deal with the fact that like this wasn't a movie and this was like we just have to keep like generating content yeah like there was an attempt to add depth and development to the character that I think every time they did it just fell flat yeah right um but yeah, like, I do think it would be, like, unfair to give a character like that more humanity than they deserve, if that makes any sense, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and I feel like um, both those ways of approaching it, either through a direct insight, like, like in a kind of empathetic way, or... To, to introduce humor are both kind of ways of breaking down the, the the complexes that we're talking about, these kind of psychopathic, sociopathic complexes, where I think you can either, I think the first way is how you really communicate with anyone is through, like, I understand you, this is how you can ascend it, or here's insight into how your complexes are wrong, or something like that, just like a basic form of communication. Or with something like humor, I think that's particularly effective in these cases because that's the opposite of how these people want to view themselves. Is that yeah, like right. the, the opposite of the super serious, disconnected view of the world is something so primal and unpretentious as, as laughter and like humor. That that's a good way of breaking down the complexes and again getting through to them through a less direct way and in a way that maybe could resonate with others in a in an easier way, maybe. Absolutely, and I think you can actually. Um, I think you can tell a lot about a person by how they respond to satire and what they consider to be funny or unfunny. Mm -hmm. And I think you can tell a lot about uh, society <laughs> by the state of satire. And I think that right now, um, in American culture, like actual satirical humor is in a pretty bleak <laughs> <laughs> Bro, SNL's killing it right now. I don't know what you're oh. talking about. <laughs> but well, I, and I think that's—I don't want to get too far on a tangent here. But you, you basically have uh, shows and publications uh, that seem to think satire is a restatement of their partisan priors, right? Mm -hmm. And this is happening on the right and on the left, yeah. right? This is just as true of 
the Babylon B, say, as it is of SNL. Mm. I don't want to say The Onion, because The Onion is a more complex case where actually it was brilliant up until just a few short years ago, and where actually I think that, like, its current pretty pathetic state is more a result of the fact that it was bought out in, like, 2016 or something, and a large portion of the former staff of writers left and things like that, like... I don't think it's simply, oh, media is so partisan now and it has to be like this unequivocal talking head kind of publication from one side or the other. Mm-hmm. But I do think like you don't have many really sharp satirical voices right now. And I think the ones that you do have uh, come under like immense scrutiny. Like look at Dave Chappelle, mm. who is probably one of the few comedians who is still more interesting, interested, excuse me, in providing like really uncompromising short satire and chasing the joke down whatever avenues like it goes. And, and I think that he's kind of a man without a country, yeah. you know? Well, and I mean, like on the flip side, I would almost argue the same for Sam Hyde. I hope that that doesn't offend you or anything. Oh, no, it doesn't. I'm not super familiar with his work. I've always wanted to to kind of look into it because he's, he is this figure that like, that like is like viewed so acrimoniously by some people mm-hmm. and is so controversial that I'm like, I should really check his shit out just to like, because sometimes you'll dig into that and you'll be like, oh, people hate this person because they're a partisan, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you'll dig into that, like with Dave Chappelle, and you'll be like, oh, people are pissed at him because he does not care who he offends. And he's just like chasing this thing down as ruthlessly as possible. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Now now I want to check out Dave Chappelle because I've always been turned off because I thought, uh, like, because I just never checked out his stuff before and I thought he had that partisan perspective. But now that that really interests me to check him out. And on the the flip side, I would really recommend you check out at least Million Dollar Extreme World Peace um, because to me, that is, like, at least from my perspective, the last truly transgressive but with purpose and artistry show that I've seen on mainstream television. Oh, yeah. No, I have, I'll have to check it out. Mm-hmm. I definitely will. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, like, like just the, the failure of, like, of comedy and satire to not move beyond pandering to preconception now is something really dire. And I think, in a different way, I, I think, laugh, like, humor and laughter being such a primal thing that we've somehow kind of managed to at least in the mainstream, kind of disconnect from. So now people only laugh at stuff they intellectually or principally or whatever agree with rather than something that's funny is really scary. And I worry that the same trends exist in sexuality, another primal urge that, like, people can't can't get off because of their own insecurities now where they have to manifest these things in really fucked up ways, which is another really freaky concept. Yeah. No, I think, I, I mean... I think you make a good point because both of those things like sexuality and humor serve as a kind of release, right? Mm-hmm. And it serves in both in different ways serve as a as a means of diffusing conflict. Yeah. As weird as that sounds, yeah, right? Yeah. Like if you look at groups of people through like if you look at this from a very tribal perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say you have two tribes that feel immense hostility towards each other because they, they occupy adjacent territories. Mm-hmm. Like, 
how do they arrive at integration? Like, how do they cease to be two discrete, hostile entities and become, like, one integrated whole where they, they, they don't want to fucking kill each other all the time? Well... I, either they intermarry, like they fu- they fuck their way out of the conflict, yeah. or they laugh their way out of the conflict, you know. And I think this is something that's like misunderstood, badly misunderstood about humor right now, where there's a real sense of like trying to avoid offensive jokes and jokes that are uh, that people think are derogatory in one way or another. When in actuality, like if you look at like the early industrial period, right, where you have uh, where suddenly, like African Americans who have migrated out of who have, who have been um, freed from slavery and migrated to the cities, or coming into contact with Irish immigrants, or con- coming into contact with working class people who are like, you know, who can trace their lineage back to the uh, to the Mayflower or whatever, and they're all working on the same fucking assembly lines, all working in the same factories, like that's where you start to see ethnic humor and like quote unquote racist humor kind of really and things like even wild like shit like blackface where that suddenly becomes popular and yeah that does serve on one level as a way to like denigrate the other it does serve as like a tool for quote unquote white supremacy or whatever but also that humor was serving as a tool of um of cultural exchange and of cultural like integration and acclimation right Mm -hmm. like you have a guy working with you who seems totally unfamiliar to you you make a joke about how he's different from you and he makes a joke about how you're different from him and that eventually that's an ice-breaking kind of thing right and that's Mm -hmm. a a tool that like leads to a more harmonious culture and you, you see the same shit in like cultural appetites for like 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 look at like black comedians like Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock mm-hmm. who were able to break through and get huge white audiences. How did they do that? Did they do that by going the Bill Cosby route and just trying to be as inoffensive as possible? Were they afraid to like tell jokes about white people? No, like like a third of their set is making fun of white people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm laughing at that. I think, you know, their audiences who are proud, who are in the, and in the case of like Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle, you're talking about audiences that are probably actually 50, 50, unlike say Cosby, where it was like, probably like 90% white people. Yeah, right. Yeah. And how do you get like white people in the room being made fun of a black by a black guy who's on the stage, who's in the position of like quote unquote quote like cultural power in that exchange. Like, how do you do that? You do that because the humor is sharp, the humor is that subversive, and because that laughter is actually and because those offensive jokes are actually a tool of cultural integration integration, are actually a tool that bring us closer to the kind of harmonious uh, interrelationship with people that we don't yet yeah, don't totally grok for one reason or another. Yeah. And I think the real problem right now is so much of that shit is taboo. Like you mm-hmm. talk about like sexual taboos and even weird like attempts to return to like quote unquote like anti miscegenation shit under the under the guise of progressivism. Yeah. Like that's wild to me. 
Like, that's unbelievable when really, like, laughter and sexuality are these ways to bring disparate communities together and get them to interact in a, in a, in a, like, friendly and communal, if still kind of jockeying sort of way, you know? And I think without those outlets, you end up with outlets that are purely resentment-based, that are purely acrimonious, where it's just this positive feedback loop of growing and growing tension and growing and growing ugliness. And I don't, don't think that's particularly good for anyone, you know? Yeah, God, man, oh, that's so on point. I never even considered it that way. That is an amazing way to put how, like, like even just like your base example there, of just like making jokes about how you're different is a way to help get past those and get the other. That's an amazing way to put it. And I think, I mean, to, re- to reduce it to a more absurd case, which was somehow a thing, the, the use of the phrase cultural appropriation and that whole thing of like, my culture is not your prom dress and stuff like that. Like that's ridiculous. That's literally like enforcing division, segregation, and enforcing like th- going against commingling, which is what exactly what these people I thought were supposed to be working towards is like, um, a, a basic like human understanding of each other, which I, I think is that's really fucked up and absurd. Um, and I think, in a way, of course, me coming from like this kind of anime background, even like the way we've tried to like reduce people down to like weebs and stuff, and like you know, I think in a way there is this sort of weird exoticism to it that that can be damaging and and kind of surface level. And I, I think like go, taking it to extremes and not understanding a different cultures is fucked up. And there are other ways around it, but still, in a way, like people's um, resistance to to engage with things in other cultures just be because they don't want that sort of connotation to it is kind of fucked up. And I think the way you've mentioned that sexuality, in addition to humor, is a way of getting through these things. I mean, the rise of like hentai across America, yeah. it's like it probably increased a lot of Japanese's cultural resonance there. And like they're coming in like through the back door, as it were, you know, like that's really crazy. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's telling that the desire to police culture, whether in the guise of like puritanical, like conservative evangelicalism, or whether in the guise of like woke progressivism or whatever, like ultimately they always, it always ends with attempts to police sexuality and to police humor and and by extension to police art which is uh usually (laughs) which can't exist without those two things right Mm -hmm. which is usually deeply interconnected with those two things yeah and i think like especially like those two concepts of sexuality humor are so important and the reason they go for it is because they know it's the way to reach everyone through these primal human urges yeah. of like like you said relief like both sexual and comedic and yeah that's that's an amazing way to put it um damn <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where to go from there that was really good what, what else can we uh anything else anything else in your mind lately you got anything else to go on i'm trying to think uh i, I think trying to think about if there's anything else like mystery tourism or that project or what we're i i kind of feel like i i hit a lot of the like main points Mm -hmm. that i wanted to about what we're trying to accomplish of course we also have a a weekly reading series which you kind of alluded to called misery loves company where different like the term I always use is like transgressive and outsider authors come and share their work. And uh, it's funny, like, 
talking about terminology, I always have trouble. I feel like there's not an easy, simple word for what we do. I don't really yeah. feel like there's a clear, like, cultural movement that we're a part of, or a clear, like, we can't really say, like, oh, it, it, for a while, like, the idea was just, like, oh, yeah, you're punk. Like, just say you're <laughs> punk. People <laughs> will understand what that means or whatever. And I, I don't really... So I always end up going back to those two labels of, like, transgressive, for the reasons I've already talked about, and then outsider, because I want to position the work that we highlight in direct opposition to, like, institutional literature or institutional art yeah. and to works that are real. Because I think at this moment, like, our artistic and cultural and political and social institutions are deeply and profoundly fucked. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to be perceived as a function of those institutions, mm -hmm. you know? And I also, I'm not looking to try to promote and highlight artists who see misery tourism as one publication credit to go on their CV to pitch their book to a major publisher, yeah. right? Because I, like, I've seen what the big publishers are putting out, and it's it fucking sucks. And I've seen the kind of culture that um, big mainstream publishers and big mainstream publications are pushing and. It's sad. It's bleak. It's extremely, it's extremely bleak. It's it's one either of like profound content with a capital C superficiality. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of franchises, or it's one of of cultural resentment and of trying to make hay off getting different people who don't have shit to hate each other yeah <laughs> no and neither of those like great cultural projects are of any fucking interest to me and mm -hmm. i think or so it's great to find artists who are like no i i want to be outside of this thing you know and i'm not afraid to have my name appear in a publication that some people think is transgressive or 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 fucking offensive right or yeah. scary or disturbing or whatever yeah. um you know people who are willing to take that risk who are willing to say you know what i'm not going to play the status climbing game and i'm not going to view my art primarily as a commodity to be sold for fame or, or to be sold for like in some cases for fucking pennies right mm. um yeah, and I know that sounds like that when I hear myself saying that, it sounds fucking pretentious. <laughs> but <that's the> thing. <laughs> really, like we just want to, we just want to like have a place out there to publish the kind of shit that we really enjoy, and that we don't see enough of out in the world. That's a better way to put it. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's awesome. Well, I mean, like in all you described there, like. I mean, really, is the fundamental like, principles of art is to put something out there that you want to see. And because the yeah. thing is, like, the art's going to last forever. You're here for however many years, you know? Like, why, why do so many people spend so much time trying to make the art serve their ends when it's, it's just very short-sighted thinking um, yeah. in general, I think? Which is why, I, like... Because I'm just, I'm lucky. I managed to find a career that has nothing to do with art and still find ways to express myself, which is lucky, which I know a lot of people do not have the luxury of. So 
I, I am sympathetic to an extent, but I think, I mean, obviously what you guys are doing is the best shit that you could be doing, and I like it's, I'm very uh, glad to have you on here to support it because I want to support this stuff too. Um, and I think yeah, no, I, I, I do want I do want to be clear. I am absolutely sympathetic to that as well, and I am absolutely 100% sympathetic to people who are hustling to get eyes on their work. Yeah. I don't want people to perceive like, uh, I don't want to be perceived as one of these guys who's like, well, just make good art, put it out there. And if the audience finds you, they find you. And if they don't, I'm sorry, buddy. Mm -hmm. Like, I do think that like the unfortunate reality is if you're an outsider artist of any kind, you have to fucking hustle. And on yeah. some level, you do have to be shameless, you know, and you have to be... Uh, and you shouldn't be shamed for being shameless in that mm -hmm. way. Yeah. Like, and you shouldn't be shamed by the pretensions of people who have easy access to institutional tools. Yeah. Right. Like, I'll see people like, especially people who are like operating inside the world of institutional lit, give lectures about how you should and shouldn't promote your work. Mm -hmm. and how you should and shouldn't advertise your art and how you what you should and shouldn't do to get eyes on your piece and who you should shut up and listen to yeah. you know and that's all bunk yeah. that's all bullshit when you're outside the institutions whether it's because you were born poor or you're you know or you suffer from mental illness or you just don't want to play that fucking game or whatever you have to do what you have to do to get eyes on your work and if that means you're on a street corner like shoving your mixtape under the eyes of people who don't want to see it because one person out of 30 might buy it mm -hmm. like do it you know and if that means you're on twitter with a really weird fucking account <laughs> <laughs> you know photoshopping like like sonic into hentai <laughs> you know <laughs> do it yeah. like if that's what's going to get eyes on your work you do it um but what I, I what i have no like no interest in doing is comforting and coddling institutions that have no interest in my work and the work that i by others that i appreciate the work of my friends the work of artists who i respect and love like i'm not gonna i am not going to warp my approach to suck up to people who I think are like, who I think are like flushing art down the toilet to begin with anyway, yeah. you know? Because like growing an audience for Misery Tourism has been an absolute game of fits and starts, right? It's been a process of trying some shit, falling flat on my face, or trying some other shit, having it work a little bit and then stop working, trying something else. And I think that like, if you're not working within the confine of institutions, if you don't have, if you can't network in a conventional way, mm -hmm. that's absolutely what you have to do. Or if, like me, you're someone who's uh, like, carries around a lot of social anxiety and like yeah. the idea of like going out in the world and promoting my work and the work of the authors that we publish, by shaking hands and like going to parties and and like getting trying to work my way into a position with one of the big publishing companies going back to school and getting the right degree attending the right parties while I'm at school and so on and so forth until you get to that point like that's terrifying yeah. like 
it's fucking scary for me to be completely frank it's fucking scary for me to go to the grocery store uh like i was in yeah. conversation the but, other day yeah. someone was like oh well like you don't have many items why don't you just go to the self-checkout and i'm like no i can't do that because once i went to the self-checkout and i couldn't complete the process properly and one of the people had to come over and help me and it ruined the experience for life you know <laughs> and just these little these little things like socialization is such a hilariously and like comically traumatic thing for me mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think for a lot of other people like maybe not to the like i'm a kind of an extreme case but for a lot of people like the will the courage the confidence to go out and relentlessly pimp your shit yeah. in public through interactions with other people like it's just not there yeah. you just don't have that like we haven't succeeded it's not like we're making money off the site it's not like we had the kind of audience that a lot of like major publications have but we have built a lawyer loyal audience we have built a following behind the site and we've done it in really like unconventional and weird ways so like if you feel like me and you have trouble like doing it the right way the quote-unquote right way well here's what we tried, maybe this will be useful for you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like, well, even the methods you propose are even a more modern way because I feel like with, especially with COVID, like making everything a lot more online, remote, I feel like the methods you talk about will be much more valuable going forward and all that stuff, just in a practical sense. Um, another thing I wanted to say is you are doing exceptional for your social anxiety. I mean, you hosting that, Mizzy loves company thing and expressing yourself and as earnestly as you are, you, you are you are doing fantastically in that way. So I just wanted to applaud you for that. Thank you. It's easier. It's easier with the buffer of the internet, yeah. right? I, I mean, I think it, there's something about the physical president presence, excuse me, of other human beings that is really oppressive to me. Mm. It's sharing space with other people, and I think it's because. But I, I mean, I think it, it's a few things. Like, one of it is just, like, my anxiety level is really high, and you pick up on cues and stuff, and you become hypersensitive to, like, yeah. personal space. Yeah, I, I, I'm not good at eye contact. Same, Because yeah. I find eye contact really, like, powerfully intimidating. So mm-hmm. I, and, and But I'm also hyper aware that I'm not good at eye contact, which creates a kind of, like, weird thing where, like, I'm like, shit, like... If I'm in an interview or something, I'm like, shit, I better make eye... Is it time to make eye contact? Should I... Because like, <laughs> it's all these you know, unspoken it's... rules. Like, it's all, like, this right. this game that all these people are playing. You're just like, is this how you play? Like, it's fucked up. I think, for me, I'm very much a verbal thinker, a verbal communicator, and I'm less... I'm very, I'm very much, like, not well in tune... I'm very bad at like spatial shit, mm. whether it's spatial perception or, and I don't know if it's like some, like if it's like Asperger's or just like some particularly unique form of autism that I have, but yeah. I've got a lot of trouble with like spatial awareness. And so it may, and especially if I get in like the zone verbally, like it's like the curtain goes down, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, um, and it's a lot easier if I'm hosting a Zoom reading or something because I can be like, okay, I'm talking now. I need to think, okay, it's time to let them talk. It's time to let them read. Like, there's a very distinct 
compartmentalization of like time and space and role that make it easier for me to feel comfortable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, that's the thing, like I was saying before, it's like, it, th this is a game we now understand, you know, like with, with the, the defined order and logic that's not beholden to some sort of earned social awareness that you get through exposure or whatever the hell that makes you get. So, I mean, I totally relate to all those things. Um, and I think when we're talking about it in terms of promoting work, I think it's a it's a real double-edged sword for people with that that, that sort of awkwardness. I think it applies to both of us because we're both, we both A, lack this sort of meta-awareness of the way to charm people and have this sort of in-person charisma that I think help people with that. And B, we're working with works that are not easily put into labels, do not yeah. easily appeal to preconception. And so that means, if anything, we have to work, we, like, we have to ha have extra of those charms to convince people that we're not d insane. And yeah, exactly, or dangerous. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's why it's really a double-edged sword and why, why stuff like, like you, you ran out there, these other methods is just so important. And um, I think in some ways, like, I'm uniquely fortunate because I'm not an intimidating person. Yeah. <laughs> like, some people who have the same kind of hang-ups that I do, the same kind of uh, social challenges that I do, they and and in the past like i have but that their like natural knee-jerk way of handling it is to be like more confrontational more rigid and more like assertive yeah and i think that can be a little dangerous and unfortunate especially when you're dealing with work that people already want to stigmatize right yeah, yeah. whereas like my natural posture is just happens to be one of fear <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of like a lack of confidence right so like i'm often like if i, I if i'm going to overcorrect i'm going to try to overcorrect and this is something I've had to teach myself too. Is like overcorrect towards humility. Don't overcorrect towards confidence, right? Yeah. Over make yourself small. If you feel uncomfortable in a situation, make yourself small. You're not going to win, but you're also not going to escalate it. And also, like when you're kind of a small guy too, like <laughs> it'd probably be a very different situation if you know if I was physically imposing or something. So I happen to be like not physically imposing and not particularly like emotionally imposing and I think that it's given me a way to like diffuse some of what can come from voicing an opinion that's maybe transgressive or controversial or sharing art that's transgressive or controversial you know yeah and I mean it is true that certain communities or whatever are more primed to find a space for this kind of work mm -hmm. um, because Rudy and I never really did find an outlet within the tabletop RPG world, within yeah. the indie RPG world. I mean, eventually we developed an audience by broadening our scope. And what I found is lit people, you know, and film people, people who are into the arts that have like a longer history, maybe just because there's more people out there, more people are interested in literature and film and so forth, or, or because there is like a greater, more robust history of transgressive works and experimental works in those in those mediums but it's a lot easier to find people who are down with 
transgressive literature and then pitch them on your games, like, hey, we also make games, <laughs> than it is to find people are into tabletop games and then pitch the content. Yeah, yeah. Man, I mean, I guess I, I kind of luck out there because I think, specifically tabletop games, like, that's, I think with the vast majority of them they're communal experiences like you need at least a few people to play them which i mean you might be like a certain person might be minded in that way but a whole group of people you can get together and play this thing will be minded in that way so you're not getting the full experience stuff so that's why like, I, I feel really bad for you because luckily with my thing i just sent it to them and they can watch it or not i mean it's it still functions the same way a film does it just exists in a medium with preconceptions about how it operates yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I, keep, I don't want to keep like taking this back to AMV and stuff. I just I find it fascinating where I found someone who was interested in a niche subculture and trying to transcend something there, which um, is like the most thankless and like difficult job ever. I mean, I'm not trying to like suck no, your dicks it, right it, now, but it is really hard. It is. It it's hard. It's challenging, and it's also in some ways hard to do it on the internet yeah. <laughs> you know as much as i've been i think i've mostly come uh presented myself like up to this point as like being pretty optimistic and uh and positive on the potential of the internet and and that's because on the whole i am mm -hmm. um you know because i don't think i would have found any audience for my work or any audience for misery tourism at all if I was fucking printing zines in my garage and handing them out on the street corner somewhere. Like the internet presented me with opportunities that mm. if I had born, been the same person born in a different place at a different time, I would have been shit out of luck. Yeah. But the internet also does breed a kind of like intellectual rigidity, right? Yeah. Like there's a lot, it's very easy with the internet to see ideology without seeing humanity and to reduce people to ideology and to eliminate their humanity which i think is just about the most like vile and worthless thing you can do especially if you're interested in art mm -hmm. like where they're really like placing ideology on a pedestal or making ideology like the centerpiece of your analysis or your appreciation is actually the act of stripping away everything of value in a work of art because everything of value in art is in the nuance of the expression and in the ambiguity of the ideas that are being presented in the complexity yeah. right and to reduce that to ideology is to reduce it to propaganda is to render it worthless yeah. and i think unfortunately like the internet has a way, especially, I, I'm, I shouldn't say the internet, web 2.0, post-social media internet, has a way of reducing people to their ideological priors, to ideology. And I think that that's the great, like, cultural toilet of her generation. I don't, I don't know what word to get, like, yeah. like, like the fertilizer lagoon of our generation is like just to be drowning in ideology all the time and to not be able to find joy yeah. whether that's in art or elsewhere whether it's in art or in humor or in sexuality or in whatever like to have everything reduced to ideology yeah 
and and like and it's the most fucked up in to, to do that in a in a cultural and an art context because literally the base purpose of art is to explore different perspectives and to see how other people think and to like to be so reductive as to, like to bring it to ideology is literally to be like oh I appreciate paintings but only when they use this specific shade of gray or something like you know it's like you've now limited the whole potential of the medium down to things you agree with which is a very limited scope so yeah, that's a great way to put it. And another thing I wanted to bring up was, uh, I think something important about the internet too, is that um, I feel like in some way you could have had a potential um, to to cultivate a following if you were just putting misery tourism out of, out of your garage. Because I think of like the case of like Daniel Johnston, you know, like Daniel yeah, Johnston yeah. was able to cultivate this really loyal following in, in Austin because like he would just go out and hand his shit out and then people like you know you would only have so many records you know you're like oh I got a free cassette now I don't have to go buy one I'll go listen to this you know but now it's like if Daniel Johnston had a fucking SoundCloud who the fuck would know Daniel Johnston yeah, you know it's just there'd another be a million guy. Daniel Johnston yeah so I think yeah. like that localization and that appreciation for the local scene which in turn are artists you are more like able to support and more likely to support and all that that has been kind of lost through the internet even though I, I have a feeling there's been attempts made with trying to support local content but it really it's been futile because you have the entire world at your grass which is like like it's a, like both a blessing and a curse um that's a really fucking excellent point and actually like it really underscores one thing that like I discovered while working on misery tourism and I think I mentioned this in the substack post too it's like the value of cultivating a community mm -hmm. like when we decided to do the weekly readings something profoundly changed like something changed um in my appreciation for what we were doing because it went it that was the moment like we sort of ceased to be just a publication just a place for people to submit their work and then be published and i think started to work on like on community cultivation and 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 I don't want to put this, like, I don't want to pretend this is, like, something that, like, I did alone or something, because it's not. It's, like, it's like been this whole movement that involves most, many different presses within the outsider commit community and mm -hmm. many different publications, like Expat Press, Surfaces, and so on. Like, <laughs> I, I want I'm, like... Who do I need to shout out here? Who would get offended if I didn't show, shout them out? But, like, but it, it's this whole thing where like the weekly reading series is one part of that, set, one outlet that helps to build that sense of greater community, right? Mm -hmm. One more thing that helps to replace like what's missing, where like we can't find common geography, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got to create a common space somehow and we have to cultivate that space somehow because it can't just be people passively retweeting each other's work on social media or yeah. people passively sniping at their perceived artistic enemies on social media mm -hmm. because that's that's a fucking dead end that's joyless you know um there has to be some kind of attempt to have a community of artists whatever that can look like in 2021 under our bizarre and unique conditions you know mm -hmm. yeah no that, that's a really good way to put it and i hope like that in some way we, we'll be able to rebuild that those sort of spaces to me the rise of 
I don't know, Discord servers and stuff like that. And I feel like maybe I mean, that's not something that has always existed is that the conscious people will find ways to gravitate and, and work with each other through whatever means possible. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I've actually been, at, you know, after years of having very little response to the work that Rudy and I did or having like pretty muted response, having a, like a small success here, a small success there, but always feeling very isolated and very alone in the work we were doing. Being a part of finding ourselves like suddenly as a part of a community is wild and it, it's gratifying in a way that I uh, didn't even imagine was possible, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. No, and that, that's great. And I think, um, I think in a weird way, I feel, I feel that, at least with the stuff I've done, through posting things and getting no response, I don't know how it, how it helps or, or hinders your, your perspective. Because I feel like it helps in the sense that you can't be basing your future work off that kind of dopamine rush of getting a response. You know, like yeah. if you like pop off on your first work and you'll be like, oh, I'm, you're chasing that high. So in a way it's helpful there because that helps you get in your own head. But it can be demotivating. I mean, so I guess it's, it's a give and take there. Yeah, oh, it absolutely is. I mean, I don't know. I'm an existentialist at heart. I'm always mm. going to go back to that, like, that, like, question of, like, is there value in that suffering? And I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a resolved question. I don't think it's a question that I can offer any honest answer to, like, what's the value of struggling in obscurity and and what even what's the value of getting that attention of getting that dopamine hit i i don't know i mean, yeah and i mean again I think, like art yeah. art's forever if you're making good stuff i mean hopefully somewhere down the line someone finds it you know so yeah absolutely absolutely and i think um i think it, it's it's not like a binary thing mm. either either that's something that i've come to realize i think like a lot of the way like artistic endeavors are presented in the popular culture and in like just the way like our like sick society programs people to think about things it's very much like was this enterprise a success or was it a failure you know did you like manage to make some kind of breakout work that's being appreciated by tens of thousands or millions of people or did did you or was it just fucking crickets? And in reality, it's often far more ambiguous and incremental about that. And your relationship to the art is often far more amb ambivalent, mm -hmm. you know, um, where you create something and where you can create something one day and, and get no fucking response. And then the next day, create something and suddenly a hundred people view it. And then after that it can grow incrementally and then it can go off a cliff and you can, you know and it can rise again it's just very and i think especially today i think it's it's particularly worthless to think in binary terms of success and failure especially with art yeah yeah no for sure um and i mean like again like in terms of being like uncertain and it's just so circumstantial you know it's just like i i think i think to me like i've just kind of I spent a lot of time thinking about that stuff too and it really just at the end of the day it's like if you're compelled to do something if you feel it in your gut to just go for something just go for it 
and if you no longer feel that compulsion for something you once did, try other stuff for a while, or you know, to find, find new compulsions. Which I mean, I, it sounds so simple to just say that, but I, I, got, I, that's just kind of how I direct myself at this time, where it's just like, oh, I want to do this. Well, I'll just, I'll just do it, you know, and I won't have these preconceptions about what I am or whatever, you know. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, that's something that I've struggled with, like for for basically my entire life, like. So often I'll have an idea and I'll be like, ah, and I'll belabor the idea to death to the point that I don't want to engage with it anymore. Um, and getting past like that tension, getting past that like fear of the page or fear of creating the thing and just fucking making it. Like <laughs> there is so much to be said for that and just letting like, you're weird as you said compulsions or whims or whatever take control and giving yourself permission to do that like is incredibly valuable because i look back now at things and the things that i just wrote you know the things that i just sat down and just created i'm often like yeah you know i'll, I'll think I'll think afterwards, oh, that must be shit. I don't even want to look at it. And then I'll go back and I'll look at it and I'll be like, oh, actually, I still like that a lot. Mm -hmm. And then the things that were an agonizing process where I struggled and struggled to try to get exactly the right tone, find exactly the right words to express myself in exactly the right way or in the way that I think that I thought at the time, like, a hypothetical reader would want it to be expressed that stuff is shit like i look at that now and i'm like oh i fucking hate this <laughs> and, and it's amazing because you would think you have this that like the more you agonize over something the better it's going to be but often that's not the case yeah yeah and i, well, I think that also does play into like expectations too like you know like you think like i suffered so hard for this and then you have this really high expectation of it and then it's just it falls flat of this sort of vision like i've, I've had that thousand times and then like this toss off stuff that's just like hey that's, that's pretty good and i feel like maybe in a way that the toss off stuff is almost like kind of a removal of agency where it's just letting these things organically flow which at least for me i'm much more comfortable in the position of the curator rather than the sole creator you know, yeah, yeah. Um, where right. it's like, I mean, like, I think that's that's what the beauty of remix culture is. You know, it's like you, you can you can mesh things, these sensibilities and make something new, but it's not necessarily you, although you had the sense that the sensitivity of these things to bring them together, you know, absolutely. And you can experience the same kind of liberation if you're like hemmed in by form or something. like, for example, for a while I was playing around with like uh, procedural text, text writing, like where I get like download a like uh, a predictive text, excuse me, like a predictive text engine and feed like a certain variety of texts into it. And then it generates like algorithmically generates like a set of options and you go word by word that way mm -hmm. and see what happens when you go down that path. Yeah. And often that was like, it didn't necessarily produce the best work it was often like artistically liberating in mm -hmm. a way. Yeah. Um, and the same thing with like designing work for contests or based on prompts or something. Like sometimes I'll just get hit with shit. Like it kind of strips away that sense of like 
you can sometimes get really bound up in like, what's my greater project? Yeah. And how does the next thing I want to create relate to my greater project, whatever that is. Whereas if somebody's like, okay, here's a one sentence prompt, create work based on this. It's like liberating. It's like, well, the project goes out the window. The, the holistic sense of who you are as an artist or whatever goes out the fucking window and you're just making a thing based on another thing. Yeah. And it's liberating. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, like, absolutely. And that's, pro that's probably, I mean, that's almost definitely why I was drawn to AMV so much. You have a song, you have a, a certain anime or work or whatever, and it's just making these things gel. Like, you have this really, like, rigid framework and stuff, you know? And, yeah, like, that, that's really, like, because that's when you almost become less the role of, like, an artist, per se, where, like, you're working on this insight, you're probing into yourself and trying to preserve a unique perspective. In this way, you're almost kind of spinning that so that you now become a problem solver, like, in the same way, like, a, like an engineer does something, or, like, you, you have these, you have, to, you have X, Y, Z, and you have to do X, Y, Z, and now you've got to make these pieces fit. And that's yeah. and like and that's just a very primally satisfying thing, I think, because it's just a very like you do something, you get result, and it's just a beautiful thing out of hard work. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, constraints in art are a wonderful thing; they mm -hmm. really are. Like uh, people, I think, have a tendency to view like, and even I sometimes fall into this trap of like art as being best when it's like liberated and free from all constraints but actually like nothing is a better inspirational tool than a self-imposed constraint mm -hmm. like i'm very actually opposed to externally imposed constraints like somebody being like okay well like all poems should follow this rhyme scheme and meter yeah. or like yeah. silly shit like that but self-imposed constraints can be incredibly valuable mm -hmm. you know yeah. Oh, I mean, like, I, just the the thing that obviously comes to mind is uh, like I heard, like Brian Eno had the had these cards that just had random challenges on them. So when he was stuck in the recording studio, you would do something like like just crazy, like you know, use the microphone this weird way. I don't know what he fucking wrote on them exactly, but like I just think like, oh, that's a, that's a really creative way to to be able to get yourself out of those funks and stuff. And like, and you think about, I mean, like obviously something like you know close to home for me is like the final episodes of Evangelion, you know, where um, Hidaki Anno. Like people say it was because he didn't have a budget, but I'm I'm not even entirely sure if that's fully the case because he did similar experiments and other things where he would just like re reduce certain scenes to just single drawings or sketches and to try and express himself that way through these external things, which I think really brought to life the whatever he was trying to express there. Yeah, absolutely. Or look at like abstract expressionism, right? I have all of these arguments with people like who I um with friends of mine we're like even some friends who are artists you know we're like well abstract the old like cliche like my child could have drawn that or yeah. like well where is like where's the skill or the talent in that and i'm like no like don't you see like it's stripping by detaching art from representation you're able to appreciate the art most purely right yeah the only thing when you look at a rothko the only thing on the canvas is the emotion that, that Rothko wanted to evoke in the viewer, right? Yeah. It's, you have the purest, you're looking at nothing but paint and canvas. You're looking at nothing but color, and yet you experience emotion. And that is like, that's fucking it for yeah. art, right? To be able to produce the most uncomplicated thing 
totally detached from like nostalgia, right? Like you can look at a beautiful landscape painting and appreciate it because it reminds you of something you saw once while you were in the past, you know, in the backseat of the car as a child yeah. going on a road trip or something. Mm -hmm. And okay, like it, and don't get me wrong, like a great deal of technical skill went into reproducing that kind of landscape and creating a landscape that evokes that feeling from you. Mm -hmm. But the author, the artist is still kind of using a crutch there because they know most people have had some kind of experience like this at some point in their lives where they looked at a landscape and felt wistful and they're channeling that. If you look at a Grothko and you feel sad, like it's not because it reminds you of your dead grandmother or something. It's because using just the basest, most simple tools available to the artist, using nothing but the medium itself, he managed, and not your nostalgia, not your memory, not your fantasies or whatever, he managed to evoke sadness or excitement or joy or wonder in you. And that is fucking incredible. Like, that's mind-blowing yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> That's man. That's that's a really powerful point. Like I never even thought to put it like that. Like about just like the pure elements detached from everything. That's what abstraction is. You've abstracted these elements and made them the purest expression of these things. And it's it's funny because that was always something I'd associated with. I mean, a phrase I knew nothing about because I, I don't know shit about like actual like academic terms. But um, I was always a champion of what I thought was primitivism, which I always thought meant just like using these these primal tools abstracted from preconception and using them to preserve an insight into these things without without exploitation of the audience. And um, I've discovered the political prim primitivism, which is how the phrase I think tends to commonly be used, is a totally different thing, which I don't agree with at all. Um, no, no, I have. <laughs> No, I, I, I agree with you, like, on, like, artistic, yeah. artistic primitivism as an exercise, definitely. And I agree with you about political primitivism, which is, like, no, I really don't, I don't want to die of tuberculosis. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really want to. I, if, I, if I had to think too much about where my food came from, I would probably die of starvation. You know, I do not, I don't want, I, I can't see... Like technology now granted, let me let I mean let me be clear here. Like the economy as it exists now is deeply unequal and fucked. Mm -hmm. But technology has liberated so many of us from like the awful, vicious, primal, degrading labor of day to day life. <laughs> and I don't think any anyone like, I, I, I grew up, like, in a working-class family, in a very poor rural area. Mm. I, I grew up struggling, and I grew up around people who were struggling even worse than I was. And I have no, I've seen subsistence farming. I've seen people live from subsistence farming, mm -hmm. you know? It's terrifying. It fucking sucks. It's endlessly horrifyingly degrading and i've also like had the pleasure of like being able to feed my cat like meat from an animal that he'd never be able to catch in the wild you yeah. know of being able to like you know feed my cat a, be a piece of stew beef or something and i know for a fact that my cat like simple basic 
organism that he is would never choose to go back outside like to be scrounging around and trying to catch rodents or whatever to be trying to worry about predators yeah he doesn't even want to go outside you know he doesn't even and i i don't he's not an out he's an in, strictly an indoor cat but he like strangers come over and he hides under the bed like he wants to be fed he comes over and he begs and i am 100 percent confident that his quality of living is greater than 99% of all, like, felines that have ever lived, yeah. you know? And I am equally confident that my quality of living, even though I'm not rich, I've never been rich, like, even is still where I am in the first world with the benefit of modern technology is greater than 99% of all humans who have ever lived and that like my clinical depression my suicidal ideation and my uh struggles with employment at different points in my life and all these things like absolute are small fucking potatoes compared to the privation and horror that most humans have experienced throughout history you know yeah and I was saying, like, even just beyond, like, a survival level, it's just, I think, like, like we're both of the, the kind of type of people where our satisfaction comes from intellectual and cultural, and like, maybe emotional on some level, the stimulation, you know? Like, like we, we, we like to think about things, we like, to, we like to express these things, and this is what gives our life purpose. So I just think that in those older types of societies where, like, obviously, like, more, more primitive, where you have to, a great deal of your time is devoted to basic living necessities, you yeah. don't have time for these, for these pleasures and stuff, not even pleasures, like purposes. Like we're, we're, this is work, and this is a type of work that is in addition to physical feats. And um, I just don't think there's as much of a place for people like us in those sort of societies. Even though I think it's a totally valid passion and and, and way way of existence. No, I mean I'm not going to knock anyone who wants to go and own a small farm or something. Yeah, I mean, that's what my that's what my dad wanted to do, which is part of the reason why we moved out into this area. And it, my sister is very much a, uh, you know, she's a biology professor, but like her hobby, like she wants to go out hiking and camping, and she wants to like learn all this living off the land stuff. And if that's something you want to do wonderful beautiful mm -hmm. like but that's just another like rare pleasure that comes from living in such an incredibly privileged moment in history right yeah but i i have no um romantic notions about it if i was born three generations earlier maybe two generations earlier than i was i would i would have died yeah yeah oh, <laughs> like, i agree I, I, I would have killed myself same. Or I would have been died by it because, like, out of, like, my sheer incapacity to care for myself, <laughs> yeah. I'd be dead. Yeah. I'd be dead for one reason or another. And if I was born a couple of generations before that, I would have died in infancy or childhood or, or, or something. Like, you know, it's unbelievable. It is... I try to never lose sight, as funny as this would sound coming from me, knowing, given the art that I create... <laughs> You know, at the site that I run, I try not to lose sight of just how lucky I am to be born in this moment and to have access to technology and the fucking internet, where a where a complete fucking weirdo like me can not only find a few people 
to talk to who share my interests and my passions, but who can actually, where I can actually cultivate an audience for my work. Now, granted, not an audience where I like, I'm making bank off it or anything, but <laughs> yeah. who fucking cares? Yeah. Like, at no other moment in history would someone like me, with my mix of weird tastes and obsessions and pathologies and anxieties and fears, be able to say that, they, that they've that they created an audience for their work, be able to say that they cultivated an audience, that they, that they found a community of artists, I think unless they were really fucking lucky and happened to be born like an aristocrat like at the right moment it, like you, you know if, if you look at like most of like the romantic poets or the people who are writing like the you know the artists that have survived from the 17th and 18th century these yeah. are all pretty much without exception aristocrats yeah we're still living worse fucking lives than we are, frankly. We yeah. still often died at 35 of, like, an ingrown toenail or something, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Man, that, no, that's, that's like, to be, to be, like, to remain cognizant of that and stuff, like, man, that's, that's so important. Yeah, like, I, I totally agree. Like, I mean, I relate to all, all the sentiments you expressed in terms of, like, being born in this moment is uh, very important. And, um here and now that's where we gotta be you know <laughs> yeah yeah hey oh. we might live to see the singularity which <laughs> hell yeah hell we might live to see where i could just like body suit myself into anime and go live there the rest of my existence and i'm i'm so there for that uh yeah <laughs> so i guess yeah i guess we're um i guess we can, we can start wrapping it up if, if you ain't got anything sure. else to talk about if you got anything to plug right now anything you got going on you want to yeah, um at the moment really just uh i guess just two things one hmm. miserytourism.com which is the website i've been talking about and two uh my Substack, which i've been kind of which i'm still trying to find a vision for which i'm still kind of toiling away at but uh the that's behind uh, excuse me beyond heat death uh dot substack um or if you, you okay now, now i'll plug the social media shit yeah. for misery tourism it's at misery tourism and my personal twitter is at wh that's w-h-d-u-r-y-e-a um and if you uh follow either of those twitter accounts you can find the website and the substack the weekly readings and all that shit um, and maybe future projects down the road. There's something that I've been kicking around that it's too early to talk about, but there may be another project coming in the not too distant future. That's the hype, man. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. <laughs> any any, uh, any any parting words? It's finally no, no. Thank you so much. This has been so much fucking fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward. To